And I truly believe that my kids, my students, loved me as much as I loved them. Because I hear it all the time now. Everywhere I go, kids remind me of, of what it was like when I was a librarian at Stony Point. You turned me on to reading. I like to read books now. And it makes me feel really great when I hear that. You're listening to the Teachers in the Movement podcast. We've been listening to Miss Dolores Campbell talk about her time as a librarian at Stony Point Elementary School. Teachers in the Movement is an oral history project that explores teachers' ideas and pedagogy inside and outside the classroom during the U.S. Civil Rights Movement. The Teachers in the Movement podcast is a member of the Virginia Audio Collective. Tune in and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. To watch the full interviews, go to teachersinthemovement.com. I'm Derek Ulrich, and I'm a professor in the UVA School of Education and Human Development, and I'm the director of the Teachers in the Movement project. And I'm Krista McCollum, and I'm a doctoral student here at UVA working on the Teachers in the Movement project. This interview was conducted by Elizabeth Cosby and Chantel White. My name is Dolores Campbell. I was born in Monks Corner, South Carolina. I also grew up there. It's a small town near Charleston, South Carolina, with a population of about 8,000 people. I grew up in a middle-class black community. Many of the people in my community and my church were educators. My mother was my teacher in first, second, and third grades. In fact, she taught all of the neighborhood children in that school for 11 years. It was in 1956, 57 school year, I entered the fourth grade when small neighborhood schools were consolidated. And I went to the big elementary school at the time, RA Ready. I loved being in school at that point. I, I just knew that I wanted to be a teacher, like my mom and my auntie and and, and my cousins and, and everybody in my community. I, I just knew that I was gonna be a teacher. Where did you receive your training in teaching and what was training like for you? I attended Benedict College in Columbia, South Carolina for two years and I transferred to South Carolina State University where I received a bachelor's degree in library science. Later, I received a master's degree in education from the University of Virginia. I had somewhat of the same experience at UVA as Ruby Bridges had at the all-white William Franks Elementary School in New Orleans. I had no friends at UVA. In fact, I did not have classes with other graduate black students. Many times I was not included in activities or study groups. I am not sure how I would have dealt with the exclusion as an undergraduate student. But as a graduate student, my goal was to receive a degree. And that is what I got. And I'm so proud of that degree. So you talked about feelings of 
uh, exclusion and UVA and I think that's something that even to this day a lot of black students can um, relate to. Uh, how did you cope with that exclusion and especially when you went into the classroom setting? Well you know I used every opportunity to learn a lesson and when I would leave my classes I knew that I would be going to Stony Point School the next day. Mm -hmm. And the students there, they just, they were absolutely wonderful kids. So they helped me to deal with what I dealt with the day before or the week before. At that time, we had less than 100 kids mm -hmm. in the entire school. And we might have had eight black students. I was the only African-American educator was not until I signed a contract that the principal said that um, you were the only African-American here. I was shocked. And I said, had I known that before I signed the contract, I wouldn't have signed it. But it was the best thing that I could have done because I just loved that time that I spent at Stony Point. And uh, again, I put forth an effort to connect and have a relationship with every black student and family and every white student and family in that school. That was important to me. So when you um, began working at Stony Point, um, how were you received by the white students? Well, that was interesting because many of the white kids, when they walk in the library as kindergartners, not knowing if this dark skin would rub off on them, they would rub my hand. And it happened so many times. And I would say to them, sweetie, it doesn't rub off. It stays that way. And it stays that way because my mom and my dad were this color. Now, as far as your black students, um, what do you believe that your presence at, the, at Stony Point meant to them? They were just happy to see somebody who looked like they looked. The interactions that you have had with the students, white and black, Stony Point um, were relatively most of the time pretty positive oh yes so as faculty how were the interactions with faculty well that might not have been as pleasant as I would have wanted it to be or as it was with the students and I do believe that that was because as the librarian I had to say no and I had to say yes and I thought it was very difficult for my white co-workers to get from me, no, we're not going to do that, or yes, you must do that. Because they felt that was a threat, I was a threat. And um, I learned to understand them, and I think they learned to understand me. And I, we probably had about eight teachers, and two of them became my extended family 
they were like my sisters. And we still have that relationship as of today. I love them. We've heard from a few teachers who developed these deep friendships with their white colleagues over time. What sort of challenges do they talk about in building those relationships? In many cases, this was the first time the teachers, black and white, had actually taught with someone of a different race. So it was challenging for both. Uh, in, in some cases, they had to build trust before they could establish friendships. But I found for the most part, as teachers interacted with each other, regarding their love for teaching and for reaching their students, they began to establish friendships, not only in the classrooms, but outside the classroom and became good friends. So I think that's very important. Within your library and within your classroom, did issues of civil rights and equality come up? And if so, how did you manage that with your students? Well, we did everything through books. When I would read a book, um, they would, we would have a discussion. And I, I remember it was about this time of the year, I was reading a book about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And I said, today we're going to find out what contributions Dr. King made to this country, the people in this country, in the world. Do you know what the word contribution means? And one little kid said, yeah, I know what it means. What does it mean? It means things that people do, like, you know, black people steal. And I said, oh, you've never seen Miss Campbell steal. He said, no, I'm not talking about you, Miss Campbell. I'm talking about black people. So that gave me an opportunity to talk about why we judge people, how we judge people by the way they look and not the content of character, anything. So something that struck me over and over in this interview was Mrs. Campbell exhibits this remarkable patience and compassion. What do you think today's teachers can learn from Mrs. Campbell's response to this comment from a student? Um, That's a powerful statement that Mrs. Campbell made. And what we can learn from her is taking students where they are. She didn't get angry. She just personalized the situation and gave the students the opportunity to think about uh, the situation in their own personal context. Uh, Ms. Campbell made this real. The issue of race wasn't something abstract. She didn't allow it to be abstract. And I think equally important is the fact that she addressed the issue in the classroom. She didn't allow it to just fester and develop into something that would maybe become uh, major issues for students later on in their lives. And I think the general manner in which she approached the situation is very telling and very instructive for teachers teaching today. I know that parents might be tempted to not discuss the issue because it's controversial, it makes people uncomfortable, but students, children, 
uh, young people are going to see it regardless. It's on television. Uh, they're going to see it on their computers. I mean, it's everywhere. So I think the advice that I would give uh, today's teachers, parents, educators would be to address the issue head on and to talk about it. I believe that through dialogue, we gain understanding and insight. And you would be surprised. You would really be surprised at how much students already know, how much children and young people already know. You're listening to the Teachers in the Movement podcast. We've been listening to Ms. Dolores Campbell talk about her time as a librarian at Stony Point Elementary School. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with a powerful story from Ms. Campbell's time in college at South Carolina State. By way of warning, this next segment will include a story of law enforcement brutality. I grew up in a family of teachers. My mother was a first grade teacher. I remember very vividly uh, going to class with her and helping her get the class ready for the beginning of a school year. So that had a major influence on me. And I also had some great teachers myself growing up in Rock Hill, South Carolina. One of my favorite teachers was a man named Mr. Smith, who taught me when I was in junior high in the seventh grade. And he used to give some fantastic lectures on world histories. And I, sh- I should never forget him. If you also had a teacher during or just after the Civil Rights Movement, they made a difference in your life, we would love to talk to them. Get in touch at teachersinthemovement.com and click on the Contact Us button. We're back with Ms. Dolores Campbell. In February 1968, South Carolina Highway Patrol officers shot into a group of protesters and killed three black men on the campus of South Carolina State. This is known as the Orangeburg Massacre. At the time, Ms. Campbell was a student at South Carolina State, and she shared with us what that night was like. When I was at South Carolina State, three of our students were killed, and over 30 was wounded. were wounded. I, I don't know if, if you guys ever heard of that. Our students went to the bowling alley to protest because we weren't allowed in the bowling alley, and it was very peaceful. Uh, Mr. Floyd, why have you uh, not permitted Negroes to bowl at your bowling alley here in Orangeburg? Because I have my own customers that patronize me 52 weeks a year. I need no other business. The second day, our students went back to the bowling alley. That was not as peaceful because three of the children or the students went to jail that night. The third night um, they were on campus and they, they made a bonfire right in front of um, the entrance and one police officer was there but we had more than 200 kids, students there. And um, the police officer wanted to make sure that no one got out of control. So he shot his gun in the air. And within seconds, there were other police officers on campus. Not knowing what happened or why he did what he did, they shot into the crowd. 
And as a result of that, three students died and over 30 were wounded. At South Carolina State College, several things happened. First, the students were demanding that the laws be enforced. The law which applies not only to them, but to all citizens. Were those laws enforced, what happened in Orangeburg would not have taken place. Secondly, the students are demanding that Negro Americans be seen as full citizens, full participants in our society, not as people with whom one can play games, certainly not as targets to practice that. I was in the dormitory. I never came out. I was scared. I was very, very scared. And they told us that we had to leave. We had to get out of campus. We have appealed to the students to go to their dormitories and stay there until we give them further instructions. And we do hope that the governor will respond immediately to this request. These students must be protected from the type of abuse that they have encountered for the past several nights. Had no money, how was I going to get to Monkscona? Because we couldn't ride the bus. They claimed that they didn't have buses running. So I waited until my mom sent someone, and this person took about eight of us who got in my mom's friend's car, and she took us back to Monkscona. We were out of school for about two weeks, so we lost two weeks of learning. But that experience I will never, ever forget. No one from South Carolina State was armed. No one. And the, the nine police officers who were involved in that, they, they went to trial, but they were acquitted. They went scot-free. There was one guy who went to prison and he was the organizer of, of, of the boycott. His name um, was Cleveland Sellers, that's it. So there's never been an investigation to determine what happened. Why did the officers pull the triggers? Why were they using double-art buckshots? Right. Why did the shooting occur? And he stayed in jail for seven months but he was pardoned by the governor, McNeil McNair. And since that time, we have had two apologies uh, from governors, but no real action. Mm -hmm. And we are talking about reconciliation, we're talking about contrition, and we are talking about making whole those families of those individuals who were, were wounded. Right. That has to happen in order for us to get through to the next segment. And when he came out, he felt that this thing will affect his life for the rest of his life because they did nothing wrong.
They had no weapons. But yet and still, three men lost their lives. We think that uh, the Orangeburg massacre, if there had been a proper investigation, if there had been some serious concern about what transpired, that we might have been able to find a way to prevent what happened at Kent State, which is more well known, mm -hmm. some two years later. But that never happened, and it still hadn't happened to this day. One of the guys, I think, was a high school student. The other two were college students. And um, Dr. Sellers is now the president of Voorhees College in South Carolina, Denmark, and he has done extremely well. He was able to rise above that. I, I, I believe that even though when times are difficult, people don't understand why and how, I do believe you can get that extra energy you need and, and you could look beyond that. When they look down, then you look up. The Orangeburg Massacre is a very important historical event within the African-American community of South Carolina. It's a pivotal event. Cleveland Sellers is a legend in South Carolina. And he's just an extraordinary person. So whenever I think about the Orangeburg Massacre, he comes to mind because he paid a heavy price for a while, but he still persevered and came out on top. The Orangeburg Massacre was 52 years ago, and we're still seeing police kill hundreds of African-Americans every year. What can we in 2020 learn from the witnesses and survivors of past police brutality? What I've learned from Cleveland Sellers and others who are witnesses and survivors of past police brutality is that keep it moving. Um, with Cleveland Sellers, he continued to agitate and he continued to be an advocate for equality long after the Orangeburg Massacre. With Ms. Campbell, we see the same thing. She came to Charlottesville, where she has served as an advocate for students. She has been an activist for her community, an activist for students. And she's been a good friend to many. So what we can learn is to direct or redirect our energy into something positive to push democracy forward. Ms. Campbell emphasizes that the students did nothing wrong. They were completely unarmed and they were nonviolent. Why do you think it was important that she had to stress that fact? Throughout the civil rights movement, even today, when students practice or protesters practice nonviolence, the media and others often present them as being advocates of violence. Many of the students were angered at news reports that sniper fire had come from the campus long before the highway patrolman opened up with a salvo of shotgun blasts. NAACP leaders held a press conference on campus this morning and vigorously denied the sniper reports and demanded that steps be taken immediately to put a stop to what they see as open police brutality. There were no weapons found um, 
and so they were unarmed. They did nothing wrong. They had no weapons. Again, you have high officials here in Colonia who say that uh, they commend the action of the state troopers in the murder. Now, this is something that makes students burn because we know what happened. It makes us burn. It's only Dr. King encountered this himself. Members of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee encountered this themselves. So I understand completely why Ms. Campbell stressed the fact that uh, the students were nonviolent because at that time, any protest march or any gathering of African-Americans was considered inherently violent. And most of the participants were men, boys, male. I was never jailed. I was never put in, in jail. My brother was many, many times um, when he was in college. We didn't know, my mom and my dad and I didn't know that he ever went to jail until about 10 years after that. And when I would ask for why you didn't share that with us, he said, because mom and daddy would have been very disappointed at that time. They would not have accepted the fact that I was in jail. He said, now, they're pretty proud of me, and they can accept it now. So that's probably the reason he never told them before. Ms. Campbell mentions that most of the protesters that night at South Carolina State were men. Why do you think this was the case? Wow, this is the first time I've, I've, I've heard this. Um, just, you know, an educated guess. I would say that uh, the students anticipated that there might be some violence that night and, um, you know, asked men to step forward and to be in the front line and to make a presence at the protest. And I suspect that some people ask women uh, not to attend the march because of the threat of violence. I'm not sure, but that's interesting. I had no idea that that was the case. Were there differences in the roles that men and women played in the movement? So oftentimes women were relegated to the sidelines by men in the movement. And that's unfortunate. Um, however, activists such as Ella Baker objected to this. I have had about 40 or 50 years of struggle ever since a little boy on the streets of Norfolk called me a n I struck him back. And they played a major role in stepping out into the forefront of the movement. And those are the stories that I'm most interested in hearing today. My name is Mrs. Fannie Lou Hamer. If the Freedom Democratic Party is not seated now, I question America. Is this America, the land of the free and the home of the brave? I mean, we've run the course of hearing about these great male civil rights icons. And don't get me wrong, I have great respect for them. However, women were critical and essential to the movement. And if we look at the current Black Lives Matter movement, when I look at the leadership of that movement, when I look at the people who are out front 
in that movement, I see a lot of women. I see women. And I don't think this is anything new. I think this is a tradition that we historically have seen with black women being in the forefront of the black freedom struggle, dating back to the early part of the 20th century, to the present, and even further back than that. I think all parents protected their children, especially girls. I I knew that I was treated differently, but I did not know how severe it was. Is there anything you wanted to share with us that we didn't get to with our questions? Um, You brought a lot of books with you. Yeah. Talk about your books. Yeah, I would love to do that. Oh, I would love to do that. They're all very special books. Okay. There is one book that I want to introduce first. This one is the story of Ruby Bridges and, and how difficult it was for Ruby Bridges to go to this school. She was the only student in the entire school because the parents chose not to let their kids go to school. There was one teacher who agreed to be Ruby's teacher. And I know what that could have been like for Ruby because I was the only African-American educator at Stony Point School for many, 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 many years. And they had to have police officers to walk with her into the school. And she was told not to speak as she walked, but she was mumbling something. And she wasn't talking to the mob that was around her. She was saying a prayer. And I prayed every morning before I went to Stony Point School. Every morning I prayed on my way to that school. And it made for a better day. And I venture to say, my days at Stony Point were excellent days. I'm Derek Allridge, and I'm joined today by Kristen McCullum. This has been Teachers in the Movement. For more information and to view the video interviews, go to teachersinthemovement.com. The Teachers in the Movement podcast is a member of the Virginia Audio Collective. The Teachers in the Movement podcast is produced by Mary Garner McGee. You heard a few other voices in this episode. Harry Floyd, the owner of the segregated bowling alley in Orangeburg, Dr. Benjamin Payton, then president of Benedict College, and a South Carolina student were all recorded in 1968 by WLTX-TV News. The clips can be found in the archives of the University of South Carolina. You also heard footage from Ruby Bridges' first day of school at William Franz Public School in New Orleans. That was recorded on November 29, 1960, and can be found in the WSB-TV News Archive at the University of Georgia. Reporter Paul Clancy and local NAACP leaders were recorded by WIS-10 News in 1968. That footage is in the WIS archives, also at the University of South Carolina. You heard Cleveland Sellers reflecting on the Orangeburg Massacre. That interview aired on WIS News 10 in 2014. You also heard from Ella Baker speaking in 1974 at a solidarity rally in Puerto Rico 
and Fannie Lou Hamer speaking to the Democratic National Convention in 1964. Our theme music is Summer Night by Vanilla. You can find their music at vanillabeats.bandcamp.com. Thanks for listening.